Well, this week wasn't supposed to happen. When I planned this series a few months back, I had every service laid out from now until Easter. And actually had planned to not be speaking this week because this week is one of the convention weeks. One of the comic book conventions that I'm involved in and work at and usually am away at at McCormick Place. Well, over the course of time and circumstances being what they were, here I am. So that provided an interesting opportunity. Now, I had every day of the last week of Jesus' life more or less kind of planned out or at least roughed out until we got to each one up until crucifixion, resurrection, Easter. So here we are with an extra day. And I thought this is a great opportunity to take another event from that week of Jesus' life, but take a look at a, a different person other than Jesus during that particular week. In comic books, this is what we would call an issue that's a tie-in. You've got your main story, and then the separate little story over here that ties into the main story and kind of fleshes it out a little bit and gives you a little bit more background on the situation. In video games, for those of you who are nerdy, because you know I am, unashamedly, in video games, it's called a side quest. You have your main objective that you're trying to accomplish, and then something else comes along, and you go off the path for a little bit, and you accomplish that, and you come back on and continue the big quest that you've been on. In television shows, if you like those hour-long dramas, this is that episode where you are focusing on, for whatever reason, a different character that's not the main character or the main protagonist in the story. Sometimes that works really well, and you go, wow, I'm really glad that I got to take a look at that side story involving that side character because it makes me appreciate them more in the greater story as a whole. Sometimes it's absolutely terrible, and it destroys the pacing of the story, and it's just not a great thing narratively. Well, this being God's word and it being the best medium ever written, I think it's a wonderful thing that we have the opportunity to depart from the main story that is Jesus' march to the cross in the last week of his life. And tonight, we're going to take a look at a very different person. Another person whose name happens to start with J who is very much involved in the last week of Jesus' life, and, if you will, could be considered the main antagonist to the story that is the last week of Jesus' life. Sean read for us at the beginning the first two verses and the last two verses in Mark chapter 14. Now, you could, and they did in the other Gospels, more or less take out that middle part and smash 1 and 2 and 11, 10 and 11, 10 and 11 together. And, you know, you kind of get a picture there of what's happening. Mark, on the other hand, says, you know, I really need to paint a picture of who this Judas guy is and what he, what he did and why that matters. And so we have this chunk in the middle of the first two verses and the last two verses. And it does, in fact, paint a picture of who Judas is. And as we look at this, you're going to see why that matters. You're going to see two people in this particular story in the middle who had a choice to make in difficult times. Because we all encounter difficult times in life. We all struggle with difficult circumstances that we don't know how we're going to work out. 
We all have times when we go, I just don't know if this is going to work out. And we find in these two people two very different decisions that are made in the midst of that. We see one person who, well, let's just look at the story and then we'll look at the comparison at the end. So looking at beginning of verse 1 and 2 in Mark chapter 14, we have the setting of what takes place, what transpires. And in that setting, as Sean read for us, we find that it's two days before the Passover. So we know that this is actually the third day again of the last week of Jesus' life. So Jesus is preaching, or he did preach on the Mount of Olives. He gave us the Olivet Discourse, which we saw last week told about the end times, and he was preparing his disciples for the bad things that were to come. And what I want you to do is think about the fact that in the midst of Jesus doing this to prepare the disciples, that one of the disciples has other plans. He's got another agenda. He's not planning to suffer in faith for the Lord. He's not planning to endure or deal with the tribulation and the things that would come. He's not planning to testify before courts and declare uh, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's got another agenda. And the setting for this, as it is two days before the Passover, on the third day of the last week of Jesus' life, and before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, we get some background on the situation that day. And what Mark tells us, and the other Gospels tell us as well, is that the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. The religious leaders in that area at that time on that day, we find it rolled out that their whole agenda is to try to catch Jesus on the down low and essentially kill him in any way they can. But they have to be very careful, and they make the note and say, but not during the feast. Why? Lest there be an uproar from the people. Because the people would not have been okay with that. They would not have, have been okay with uh, this murder occurring and taking place during this time of festivity. They were focusing on the Passover. They were looking forward to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That would be an incredible buzzkill to hear that the Messiah, the King of the Jews, was essentially assassinated by the religious leaders. So they said, we can't do this publicly right now. We must wait. We don't know what we're going to do or how we're going to accomplish it. Enter Judas. We see in verse 10 as we go down there, then Judas Iscariot, at some point on the third day, of the last week of Jesus' life, maybe it was during while Jesus was preaching on the Mount of Olives. Probably several people there, wonderful opportunity to sneak off and take care of some business on the side. Maybe it was later that night after Jesus had returned to Mary and Martha to the M&M Airbnb. Maybe he went off and he took care of it then under the cover of darkness, which we see several places in scripture people do when they want to get shady deeds done. But whenever it happened, what I do know for 100% fact is that Jesus knew what he was doing. And he let him do what he was going to do. Imagine that, if you will. Put yourself in the place of the disciples who were facing the fact that the entire religious establishment was looking to kill Jesus and really by proxy them too. You're one of the twelve. You're in Jerusalem. You know that people are out for your head because of what you claim to believe. And Judas knew it too. And he handled it in a different way from the rest of them. 
So Mark gives us some interesting insight, which I absolutely love. When we look at Mark chapter 14, we go, well, verses 3 through 9, why is that there? In fact, we might be led to believe just by reading it that this happened then on the third day of the last week of Jesus' life. But it didn't. Because we've talked before about how the Gospels are not arranged chronologically. And in fact, when you compare Scripture with Scripture, we find that verses 3 through 9 actually occurred the Friday night before. So this was before even the last week of Jesus' life began. So why in the world would Mark make it a point to put it here? Well, it's very important, actually. You see, it occurred on, we know that it occurred on the Friday before, because a good Jewish person wouldn't be traveling on the Sabbath. So they had made plans to get into town or get into the area ahead of time so that they wouldn't have to travel during that time, during the Sabbath. So they needed to get where they were going on Friday so that they could observe the Sabbath on Saturday, and Jesus could roll into town on a donkey on Sunday. But let's look at what happens in uh, on that Friday prior to the last week of Jesus' life. We're told Mark gives us this account. He says, And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his Jesus's head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii, and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So why did Mark bother to include verses 3 through 9 in the midst of 1 and 2 and 10 and 11? It's because Mark wanted to introduce to us a person, a man, who when things were difficult, when life was tough, and he had a choice to make about how he was going to respond, did something that was very different from the lady that we see here mentioned here. A little bit of background on this story and passage, we find that they're in the house of Simon the leper. Simon is mentioned as Simon the leper because he is the leper that was healed in Mark chapter 1, verse 40. And so we get that. Mark is like, hey guys, remember back in, in chapter 1 when Jesus healed that guy? Well, now they're basically having a party at his house. And this is like the last party Jesus attends before things get really bad. So they're having a party at the house. At Simon Lepper's house. You remember that guy from back in chapter 1. And we find that is, there is, everyone is reclining at the table that the woman, as we see here, takes a, an alabaster flask of ointment of, of pure fat, essentially. Animal fat was really expensive and is a really important commodity in the ancient world because you can use it for candles and all kinds of different things. Cooking, you name it. So it's very expensive, very valuable. And this woman breaks this flask and pours it over Jesus' head. And we see here, it says there that, that, that some scolded her. 
Now, let's look at who the some were that scolded her. Go ahead, and I'm going to have you guys get a little exercise tonight with the Bible. So my apologies ahead of time. But go ahead and flip over to John, and let's find out who these were that scolded her. John chapter 12. I'll give you just a second to get there. It's not too far over. Page 898. Probably only helpful to maybe like one or two of you. But it's in John chapter 12. So we're in John chapter 12, and we find basically the same account that we just looked at in 3 through 9. But go ahead and look down at verse 4, and let's see who these people were that scolded this woman. Verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, note the parenthetical reference there in John, he who was about to betray him. John said that's important to note. You need to know that about this guy. He said, why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii given to the poor? And John goes on to explain why that mattered to Judas, who was one of those that scolded her. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So flip on back. Let's go on back to Mark. So now we know who these were that scolded her. For whatever reason, Mark is diplomatic here and doesn't throw Judas directly under the bus. I have a feeling it's probably for artistic reasons and because he's waiting for the big reveal later. But we know that Judas was the one who scolded her. And we're told in John why. Because he was selfish and a thief. And he didn't like the fact that she had broken that flask that he could have sold on the side and put money into his pocket. Because we know here, in retrospect from John, because the Gospels were written after the fact, that they figured out or found out that he was actually skimming off the top of the money bag for the disciples. So we know that from John. And so we see here, he scolds her. He leads the charge. There's probably more than him, though. So he scolds her, he leads the charge on this. Because he was selfish. Because when push came to shove... And things were hostile in his life, along with the lives of the other disciples and Jesus. He, to the very end, was looking for a way to take care of himself. And he was deceiving everyone, even then, in what he said about the situation with the woman. This woman is expressing devotion. Was this woman at any less risk than the disciples and Jesus? No! If anything more, because she was a woman. And yet, even though she too, for her faith, was potentially facing maybe even execution like the rest, she devotes her life, as pictured in this flask, to the Lord Jesus. Regardless of the cost, she gave the thing that was of most value to her in her life to him. She said, life is not great right now to be a believer, but I am going to choose to devote myself to the Lord no matter what happens and give him the most valuable thing in my entire life to show him how much I love him. While Judas takes great pains to continue to deceive the Lord and everyone who is there with him because he's looking out for himself. He's trying to deceive everyone there, and yet we find, as we continue, and, and we, we won't look at it tonight, but in other places, if you read on, he not only deceives everyone else, but he also deceives himself. 
and he deceives himself. So he chooses deception over devotion. She choosing devotion over deception. And we find that then a few short days later, and this is the thing, folks, betraying Jesus doesn't just happen. You don't just wake up one day and go, eh, I'm going to turn my back on the Lord today. I'm just going to disobey him now. It starts in the heart, and it starts over time. And I think that's what Mark wants us to see here. To deceive other people and to deceive yourself is a process. And that's what Judas does. And one thing I want to note before we look at the, the last part of this passage is I want us to look at verse 9. There's actually a couple things here with Jesus that Jesus says. I believe in verses 7 and 8, he talks about them always having the poor with them, but not always having him. Because I believe that Jesus wants Judas to know that he's on to him, that he knows it's really not about the poor, and it's not about all of that stuff that he's trying to put forth and deceive everyone with. Because Jesus knew Judas, just like he knows you and me. And Judas thought he was deceiving him and everyone else, but he never deceived the Lord at any point. So I think he wanted him to know that. And then what point does Jesus make that I think we often skip over when we read this passage? Look at verse 9. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Go and let that irony sink in for a minute. Because I would be willing to bet if we asked anybody on the street, like did a random survey, uh, are you familiar with Mary the prostitute in the Bible? People would be like, which one? I mean, okay. Have you ever heard of Judas? Oh, yeah. That's that guy that betrayed Jesus. So I ask you, who is the one who is in fact remembered for their deeds? And that is also a question that we always must constantly ask ourselves. What would we like to be remembered for? Because we will be remembered by someone, but what will it be for? So let's look at the last section here. So Mark paints a picture of the, the situation that they're in, that the religious leaders are looking to kill Jesus on the sly, stealthily, but that's their plan, that's what they're going to do, to arrest him and kill him. But not during the feast, they're going to wait. They just don't know what they're going to do yet, they don't have a plan. Then enters Judas. So Mark painted this picture of him for us, so we see what kind of dude Judas is that we're working with here. And verse 10 tells us, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. That tells me that Judas looked at the landscape and saw an opportunity. Because it's not like any of the Sadducees or religious leaders sent him a message or a text and said, Where you at, bro? Let's get together. Judas went out of his way to seek them out because Judas read the landscape and said, here is my chance to truly profit on the Lord. They all think that I'm in tight with him and that I'm following him. I'm even keeping track of the money. I mean, he, had, he literally had a position in the disciples. Not many could say that. And he said, guys, I've got the opportunity of a lifetime for you. I'm going to hand Jesus over to you. Let's see if we can't make a deal and work something out. And the craziest thing is that they offer Judas 30 pieces of silver. And Judas, knowing and being a businessman who was always looking to turn a quick buck, 
doesn't even haggle with them. He just says, oh, 30? Eh, all right, that's fine. 30 good for me. I don't know about you. That shocks me a little bit. That he would just take 30 pieces of silver out of hand. Without even trying to get more. And that goes to show you how little Jesus mattered to him. Which is also something that we really need to think about when we think about Judas. Judas spent three years walking with the Lord without ever really walking with the Lord. How many people in our lives look like they're probably a Christian? Talk like they're probably a Christian. By all accounts, seem to act like they're probably a Christian. But at the end of the day, are walking with the Lord without actually walking with the Lord. And dare I say, how many of us could be in that very situation? So close, yet so far away. So let's look here then. He goes to the chief priests. They offer him 30 pieces of silver. He says, all right, works for me. Takes it. And it says, when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give or, or promised to give him the money. So I mean, he made them happy. Isn't that nice? Judas made these guys happy. And Mark makes it a note to point that out. And in fact, actually, in the other passages that if you look at in the Gospels, it always notes that they're happy that he sold Jesus out. Why? That's a question for God someday when we get to meet him in person. But it says that they were happy. But maybe just maybe... It's because he wants the readers to know that Satan is happy when we sell Jesus out. When we betray him. When we put ourselves first. Maybe, just maybe, it brings joy to the bowels of hell for us to reject the one that we claim to follow. It made them happy. What should make us sad? They were glad they promised to give him the money, and he sought an opportunity, in verse 11, to betray him. So at this point then, now Judas is going to collect the money, he's been promised it, and he'll get it later, as we see in, in the Gospels. So now Judas is going to go back to Jesus. Can you imagine how brazen that is? To have walked with him for three years, to have seen him heal people to bring life from death, to love children, to, to, to cure people of ailments, and then for Judas to brazenly stroll right back into the Savior's presence like everything was cool. Do we do that sometimes? What would bring or what could bring a person to do that? Let's look at Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verses 3 through 6. Now, again, we see in Luke chapter 22, don't we, in verse 1, speaking of the Feast of the 11, uh, 11 Bread and the Passover that was to come. 
and the chief priests and scribes that were seeking how to put Jesus to death, for they feared the people. Sounds familiar, right? Look what we see very uniquely in Luke. Luke was either very, well, Luke was very intuitive. He was a physician, so he was really good at reading people. But not only that, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he pens these next verses. Verses 3 through 6. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So what do we have here? This is a very serious indictment of Judas. We're told that Judas, though he walked with the Lord for three years of his life, though he kept the money bag, though he claimed to be a Christ follower who was there for all of these things that occurred and took place, all of the things that Jesus did, all of the messages about the kingdom that was to come, all of those things, and he betrays him. How? We see that at this moment in verse 3 that Satan entered into Judas. I personally, personally believe that there was a possession here. I do. I fully believe that Satan possessed Judas, much like we see in other places in Scripture, the fallen angels in Mark chapter 5, notably also in Mark, right? Uh, possess people. I believe that it happens. But I also believe something else, lest we run out in fear tonight. I believe that Satan can only possess a willing vessel. He can only possess someone who does not know Jesus Christ. Because if we have the Holy Spirit of God living within us, there's no room for Satan. But Judas was one who walked with the Lord, but didn't really walk with the Lord. And over the course of those days, years even really, if we're being honest, he was preparing himself to be used by Satan to betray the Savior. Because Satan needs a willing vessel. Flipping back over to Mark chapter 14 as we conclude tonight. We saw the scene, the setting of what happened on that afternoon night of the third day of the last week of Jesus' life. We saw what Judas did. We saw how he did it. We saw why he did it. But Mark also shows us a woman who he intentionally contrasts with Judas Iscariot. And most of the time when we preach this passage, or at least, you know, when pastors' messages I've heard, they typically focus on the woman, which is fine, and that's important because that's, that's awesome. I mean, that's, she should be honored and remembered just like Jesus said. But I believe that we can't forget the cautionary tale here that we see about the one who scolded her because he was a thief and a deceiver, and a liar, who was the perfect vessel for Satan himself to sacrifice our Lord. All against the backdrop of dangerous, life-threatening, troublesome situations where everybody's life was in danger and life was kind of terrible. So my question tonight is this. What will you choose in life when things are difficult? 
when it's hard to be a believer, when it seems like that brings you nothing but pain and trouble, when your very life could be in danger, what will you choose? Will you choose devotion? To say, Lord, here is what I value most. It is yours. You can have it. I trust you with it because I love you. And I trust that no matter what happens, that it's most important to show you that I love you. Or will you choose deception? Choose to play a game with life. To walk as close as you can to the Lord without actually walking with him truly. That is a choice that we all get to make every single day. But we must remember that the slide toward deception does not just happen. It's not one instant. It's a process. Make that choice tonight before you leave. Will you be remembered as one who is devoted to the Lord, who loves him more than anything else? Or will you be remembered as one whose life was marked by the deception of others and the deception of oneself. Father God, thank you so much for including this passage here. For taking something that seems an initial reading kind of out of place. And yet, when we understand your word and we understand the Holy Spirit's work, we see that you had this all planned that you're completely in control, and that you want us to see this contrast between these two people, that you want us to make this choice, to walk with you truly, not just because it's easy or convenient or, or, or we get less flack in some circles if we say we're a Christian, but because we love you even when things are terrible. God, help each one of us to make that choice tonight and to make it each day of our lives going forward. And Lord Jesus Christ, it's in your name, the one who sacrificed his life for us, who was betrayed and suffered and died to rise again. Amen.